Holy Spirit. One God, amen. Okay. The, the one thing also I thought about is that uh, I don't think we discussed last time, which is basically why prophecies? Why should we care about studying prophecies? Why did God use prophecies from the Old Testament even until now? Uh, even in today's modern age, we hear about the book of, I'm sorry, the door of prophecies and, you know, Monastery of Suryan and so on, and you know some different opinions about that. But in general, why did God chose to use prophecies to talk to us? Don't read. First, let's discuss it first, and then we'll read. How to strengthen our faith? But how? Exactly. So, God tells us, you know, through His prophets, through His, you know, righteous people about things that are going to happen in the future. So, when these events happen, we start believing them. For example, we're studying the book of Daniel with the high school. And you see the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, had. The interpretation of the dream spans an era of like, you know, almost close to a thousand years. And all of these events happen exactly as it is. So, this means that not just this prophecy, and also other prophecies are going to be in that book, are important, and they're going to happen, and we have to pay attention to them because they're bound to happen. The most important prophecies that we have to worry about, that we have to focus on, is that the prophecies about incarnation, that's the most important thing. And I think, you know, if, For example, people like Daniel, Ezekiel, you know, Jeremiah and Hosea and all these other people, all these other great prophets, they gave us a lot of prophecies that are things that are going to happen. Very exact prophecies about what's going to happen. And they also told us, look, there's going to be a virgin that's going to have a son and the son is going to be great and he's going to be a savior of the whole world and on his shoulders is going to be the salvation of all humanity and all these great prophecies. We see everything else happening true. So most, you know, definitely all the things they're saying about the incarnation are true. And also all the prophecies about the second coming are true. And all the prophecies about the life after death and the reward for the righteous people and the punishment for the not so righteous is going to be also true. So that strengthen our faith that they've told us, you know, the Bible have told us things from the beginning and it happened. So the other things that, that the Bible is telling us is also bound to happen. Okay. So that's why also the importance of studying the prophecies is, you know, we are getting ready for the second coming, we are getting ready for uh, the end of the world, so we need to know what's going to happen there because it's bound to happen. And if somebody tells you that there is no life after death or anything else, do not believe them, the Bible has said so, and all the Bible, prophecies in the Bible, in the Bible are true. Okay, so let's start with chapter 1, an overview of chapter 1, and basically this is the first chapter in Revelation, and St. John is just receiving the, the Revelation, he's telling us who's giving him the Revelation, and he's telling him like, you know, where he was, what is the context of, you know, this Revelation, and so on. And the introduction, the first revelation he sees is going to be the seven churches. I'm going to go through that in details. The first revelation, uh, verse 1, chapter 1, 
a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God has, which God gave to him to declare to his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he signified it by sending his angel to his servant John. And we talked about apocalypse, and the meaning of that is appearing or revealing someone declaring something to other people. Like for example, when you introduce yourself to someone and say, I'm so and so, you are revealing your identity to other people. So in the same way, God is revealing himself or revealing these secrets to us. And by the way, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So St. John is here is emphasizing that the source of this revelation is Jesus Christ himself. There's no uh, discussions about this. And also, as we talked last time, we see that uh, the order of delivering the message to the angel and then through St. John. By the way, what is... How did the Lord Jesus, you know, Jesus Christ appear in the Old Testament? What was one of the common names attributed to him in the Old Testament? Wisdom. wisdom. That's correct. That's you know, whole uh, the whole book of wisdom, the chapter eight, talks a lot about that. But there's also a lot of times when Christ appeared in the Old Testament. They refer to him as the angel of the Lord. Malak al-Rab. And the, the, the vision or the encounter starts by saying that the angel of the Lord appeared to a person. And then throughout the discussion or throughout the dialogue, we end up like for example with Gideon. Gideon saw a vision. So someone you know, came to him, you know, a heavenly person appearing to him and he thought he's an angel. And then by the end, this person allowed him to offer a sacrifice to him. And we know, you know, from the Bible that the angels will not accept such thing, you know, to be offered to them because they're not God. And sacrifice should only be offered to God. So when this angel accepts the sacrifice, it means that he's Christ himself. So that's another name for Je- So why do I call him angel? If he's God. Why would they call him an angel? An angel of the Lord. He's a message. He's bringing us, you know, a message from the Father to talk to us, you know, tell us, you know, about our salvation, about our future, and so on. Okay? Very good. Okay. Let's go back and read this verse. And again, here we said that uh, Christ is the hypostasis of knowledge and He's the one who reveals to us everything about uh, the Father. Right? And in Matthew 11.27 He said, All things are delivered to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father. So for us, to, for us to know the Father, we has to be through the Son. And for us to know the knowledge of the Father, it has to be through the Son. And it continues in Matthew, Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal him. So you take this verse in Matthew 11.27, and you take the first couple of verses in Revelation, and they fit together perfectly. 
and we said Jesus Christ is the Savior, uh, Jesus is Savior, Christ is the chosen one, so Jesus is the, you know, the, our Savior, the chosen one to be our Savior and our Archpriest, Archprophet, uh, he's the one who's receiving this message on our behalf from the Father. To his servant, again, this shows that no matter what we do, we're still called servants. We don't call Christ our brother, you know, and we don't call him by the first name. We always try to, you know, address him as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or, you know, our, you know, at least Jesus Christ, our Savior, not just, you know, Jesus and, you know, as some of our friends uh, do. Shortly come to pass. As we talked last time, and we said, how how do how does God perceive time? At least the way we understand that God perceives time. How does God perceive time? Okay, a day crosses you know like a thousand year and a thousand year you know is like a day. Right? We'll get later on to some of this because you know some people misuse that particular verse. But how does God perceive time? Is there present, future, and you know past? No. As we said, this is like a picture that's painted. And as the painter looks at the picture, he knows when he drew each part of the picture. But he always sees the picture at once. Or like a producer, for example, seeing, you know, sitting on the stage and seeing what's happening in front of him on the stage. He knows what happened. He knows what's going to happen. And he knows who's going to do what. And he's watching because he's the one who knows it all. Same way God is. He knows the past, present, and the future all at the same time. So to him, time... He doesn't follow, it doesn't fall into that dimension. He's timeless. So, uh, shortly come to pass, and St. Paul had, you know, said that, you know, Christ is coming soon, that even when he was saying that, some people dropped everything, and they left, you know, their work, and they sold everything, and really just, you know, went to church and sat down waiting for Christ to show up. Because St. Paul and all the, you know, apostles were saying that Christ is coming soon. And it's been 2,000 years. So some people are abusing that and said, God is not coming. It's, you know, just a story. Don't believe that. But no, He is coming. Even if time in our perception is long, He's still going to come and judge us according to our deeds. All right. Again, to His servant John, the verse that ties that and explains to us why St. John is saying that, Christ himself told us, So likewise you, when you, when you shall have done all things commanded to you, you say, we are un, unprofitable servants, for we have done what we ought to do. So you followed all the command, commandments. You did everything right. doesn't make you a saint, just by following the commandments and executing you know, God's word. Because if you do all this, you're just a servant doing what you're told. So you didn't do anything extra. Is this uh, clear? Any questions so far? Yeah.
Let's, let's, okay, the question is basically, the church tells us to be like the saints, and once we become like the saints, or, you know, try to imitate them, we feel that we're proud, so how can we balance that? Again, what the church is telling us, or what the Bible exactly is telling us in the, you know, the Song of Songs, is follow their footsteps. Uh, or look at the end of their, you know, lives and follow their footsteps. We don't imitate them as individuals who imitate their footsteps. For example, we know one of the saints, uh, Amber Brahm Messon, he loved the poor. Right? So I don't do exactly what Amber Brahm did. I follow the footsteps of loving the poor and caring for the poor. Because the, the ultimate person I'm supposed to be following and copying is Jesus Christ. And you can look at the saints as an example of these people who followed Jesus Christ, uh, imitated Jesus Christ to the best ability they can, and to us, this is an example that we can follow. Because we know these are humans, like you and I. They managed to follow Jesus Christ to the best ability they can. And they became like a shining star. So I'm going to follow the same footsteps. They struggled, they uh, sacrificed, they gave themselves up. So I'm going to go that direction. But I'm, I don't want to be like Amber Brahm. I don't want to be like, you know, Mary Gilgis. I want to be like Christ. Is that... Uh, a little bit okay again we talked about the order of sending the message it's from the father to the son to the angel to St. John to the bishops to the people so the order in the church is very important and the order you know of priesthood and also remember when the Lord was you know uh, blessed bless the five loaves and the two fish he also requested people to sit down and he gave order. And when he sent the disciples, he sent them in, you know, groups of two and in order and gave them instructions. So our God is a God of order. Not like what we do in the church on Sundays. Okay. Okay. Who bore record of the word of, Je- of, the, of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ of all the things that he saw. So St. John here is just bearing witness, saying, I only writing what I saw. And we're going to see later on that Christ is telling him, write what you see. So this is not just somebody who saw something and then, you know, he's writing his own interpretation of things. But he's writing what he saw. So the question to us, are we witnesses to God and to his message? Or at least, do we witness to him in our homes and you know families, or is our this witness you know uh, only in Sunday school and you know in church and not outside the church? Can people you know do we testify and witness to him regardless of what's going on? And as you all know, Saint John, as we talked last time, he was persecuted, he was exiled, and he was an old man in his 90s. So, but he when he was suffering, but he still bore witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So blessed is the one who reads and hears the words of this prophecy and the ones keeping the things written in it for the times near. So the instructions here are to read, to hear, and to keep things written in this prophecy. Nowhere here he says to understand. Nowhere here he said to apply to particular events. But we all said, you know, I said before last time that 
most likely we're not going to understand most of this book. So why do we study it if we're not going to understand it? What benefit will I get of just reading something even if I don't understand it? I should cover some of these things, by the way, so until you guys answer. So what benefit will I get with that? From reading something, I will not understand. understand it when it's carried out, but you know, this prophecy has been written, this is absolutely right, but this prophecy has been written 2,000 years ago. And a lot of these events haven't happened yet. So all those people who read it before and waiting for the events to happen, did not happen in their lifetime, did not benefit? I'm sure not. There are some other benefits that we will get when we read this prophecy, regardless whether we understand it or not. Most of us don't understand, you know, the majority of the Bible when we read it. Uh, not to belittle anything, but a lot of us, you know, a lot of people go and, you know, try to study, you know, Greek and, and all that. By the way, I want to study Greek, so I'm not belittling any of these things. But if we understand the basics of the Bible, to take us a lifetime. So to go and argue about semantics and, you know, the verb and the tense and, you know, this vowel and so on, requires a lot of dedication, a lot of high level, but we need to understand the basics. Let me give you a small story that you know, I heard, and you know, again in one of the, I think Abu Tadros Ya'ub said that story. One of the young monks went to the monastery, and he wanted to learn. So he went to his father, you know, in the monastery, monastic life. You always have a father to teach, tell you what to do. So the father told, you know, this young monk, go and read the Bible. So he went and read, you know, for a week, then you know, two weeks. Didn't understand anything. Went back and told him, Father, I didn't understand anything. Go back and read. A couple more weeks, he kept reading, he didn't understand anything. He went back to his father and said, Look, why could I, should I keep doing this? Well, I don't understand it. So the father told him, you know, he got a, a basket, you know, woven basket, give it to him, dirty basket. Him, Take this, go bring water in it and come back. Of course, you have to obey. In monastic life, if the, you know, your father tells you, you know, go do whatever, you have to do it, regardless. So he, this monk, as part of his obedience, took the basket, woven basket, went to the well, dipped the basket in the well, got it up, of course, no water. He did that like four or five times, and finally gave up, and went to his father and told him, well, here is, I couldn't bring any water. So the father told him, now look at the basket. Is it clean or dirty? He said, no, it's clean. He said, it's the same thing. Maybe you don't keep anything from what you read the Bible. But the word of God is going to cleanse you anyway. So that's an important aspect of reading this prophecy. But there's a lot, a lot of other aspects. Okay. Some of these aspects basically strengthen our faith that God is in control. We, we're going to see a lot horrible things happen. A third of the world is wiped out. Uh, diseases come in. You know, earthquakes. Things falling from the sky, uh, persecution, all these things. But in all of these events, we're going to see that the one is in control. The one who's giving the instructions for these to happen is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God is the one in full control. So I'm not going to understand what does it mean by, you know, uh, a star falls from heaven and takes with it a third of the world. I don't, I'm not going to understand that. I'm not going to understand who is, you know... The 666. I'm not going to understand, you know, a lot of these things. 
But what I'm going to understand one thing, that Christ is in control. He's the one who's going to give order to his angels to put his stamp on his people so nothing happens to them. So that's going to comfort me. No matter what I see outside in the world, no matter what, you know, things going up and down, tribulation, persecutions, Alexandria, China, whatever, I know one thing, Christ is in control. That's one thing. The other thing is, you know, make us familiar with heaven. When we read about, you know, the 24 priests, you know, the four, you know, beings, the angels, the, the, the hymns and the singing and all these things, heaven starts to become familiar. And especially when we read the last three verses, three chapters, when they describe heavenly Jerusalem and how it's going to look and how wonderful it's going to be and all that, makes us feel that, you know, we're ready. We want to go there. Not soon, but in, the, in due time. Uh, so that's also something beneficial of reading this particular uh, book. Uh, we'll understand that the world is a difficult place. Yes. Why is the heaven described as Jerusalem or heaven in Jerusalem? Uh, very good question. Jerusalem is the place where God, where the temple was there, and God was in the temple, so God was with his people. There was only one place in all of Judea, or all of Israel, there was only one place where it had a temple, and that's Jerusalem. So, going to Jerusalem and visiting the temple was as if you're going to church, coming to church and visiting God in his house. Of course, God lives everywhere, but this is where the presence is. And actually, if you go back and read uh, Ezekiel, for example, you're going to see that the glory of God was on the temple. And unfortunately, you're going to see, you read also in Ezekiel, that the glory of God left the temple gradually because of the sin that was in Jerusalem at that time. So, let's forget about that part. But before that, God's glory was in the temple. So you go to Jerusalem, you go to visit the temple, you see God's glory there. So that's why Jerusalem was where God lived with his people. And the he heaven to us is heaven in Jerusalem because this is where God is going to be with his people. And we're going to read that if God gave us you know, life and we, we reached the end of this, uh, this book. We're going to see that this is where God lives with his people. Uh, that's, that's why we call it heavenly Jerusalem. So in, on the word, in the word, they're gonna ha we're going to have tribulations. We're going to have problems. There are going to be persecutions. There are going to be people who fall into temptations. People who are going to leave the faith. There are going to be lot wars, famines, hunger, everything. So we are prepared. So when we see these th things happening, we don't give up. We don't, you know, declare, oh, God was, you know, mistaken. We you know, became Christians to have a nice good life and, you know, make good money. But now there's, you know, persecution, there's tribulations we live. No, this is a warning from now that our life here on earth is going to fill with, be filled with problems. So, our role is to memorize the prophecies. What does that mean to memorize the prophecy? Here's a very nice example. Let's get Matthew 24, 15, and 16. I'm sure you all have your Bibles. Not the ones that uh, Hany got for you. 
What is Matthew 24? The disciples knew that the end is coming near. They asked Jesus, tell us the signs of the end of the world and the end of Jerusalem. And they mixed up between, they thought that the end of Jerusalem means the end of the world. And Christ did not really correct this misunderstanding. He gave them the prophecies about the end of the world and the prophecies about the end of Jerusalem mixed together. Okay. Um, like he talks here about, you know, uh, nation rising against nation and uh, false prophets and rumors of wars and so on. But then he comes here and says something uh, very specific. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end shall come. This is very specific. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those in Judea flee into the mountains, let him on the housetop not come down to take anything of the house, of this house, of his house. People memorized these prophecies, what, what Jesus, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ told them, they memorized that, they kept it in their heart, and that's it. So what happened? In the year 70 AD, uh, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, and they kept a very tight seal on it, and there were several attacks and so on, but they were sort of, you know, giving up. So one last time before they gave up, uh, one of the soldiers managed to put the, you know, insignia of Roman, which is like, you know, the eagle, on the temple. And the Jews uh, noticed that, so they attacked him and so on, and, they, you know, they drove the Romans out. When the Christians saw the insignia of the Roman Empire on the temple, they immediately, you know, understood this verse which is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stands in the holy place when they saw that happening in front of them they ran away as Christ said they did not go back to you know to their houses they did not go back to Jerusalem they ran away and what happened is immediately after the Romans left Jerusalem they received enforcements they came back and they went in and destroyed Jerusalem, killed two million Jews, crucified hundreds of thousands, buried the whole place, brought it down, you know, to ashes basically, and destroyed the temple, destroyed everything, wiped out everyone. So if we memorize the prophecies as it is, when it happens, it's going to be absolutely clear. All right. Are we okay so far? So... That's what the Christians did with this particular prophecy. Now, our role as Christians is to keep the faith that's given to us, given once to the saints. Who said that? The faith delivered once to the saints. Who said that? St. Jude. Okay. Our job is to keep it. The same way we're keeping this prophecy, we're keeping the faith that we have received. Maybe we don't understand it. A lot of times we do things in the church and a lot of us don't understand what we're doing. And if you go back and study the history of the cops in the midst, you know, middle ages, 
we had very few intellect people. A lot of the cops were ignorant. A lot of the cops did not receive any kind of education. You know, I'm not speaking about higher education. Basic education did not receive that or anything. But they kept the faith as is. They did not change it. And that's why we received it today as it is. Our job is to keep the faith that we have as is. We don't change it. It's not by our choice that we take this part and put this part and, you know, modernize this and not modernize that and all that. That's why the, the fathers of the church, you know, today's father in the church, they're very careful and very scared of changing one little thing. Because you don't know what, a, what you're changing is, you know, for those engineers, is a carrying beam or a carrying wall, supporting wall, or just a wall that you can remove and nothing happens to the house. Sometimes when we change minor things in faith or in dogma or in, you know, even practice, we change a lot of things. So that's why we're keeping everything exactly the same thing delivered to us. And based on this, you know, keeping the prophecy as is, memorizing it, and not necessarily understanding. Okay? Especially this is for the, for the servants. A lot of times if the servant doesn't understand something, he wants to cancel it. He wants to take it out of the service. Sometimes he wants to take it out of the faith completely. Because he doesn't understand it. That's not our job. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is coming and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now we start. Fun stuff. First, this is the first mention of the throne here. However, we're not going to emphasize on this word. We're going to see the throne in its glory later on in chapter 4 and so on. Okay. And as we talked last time, if you look at the Mediterranean and Greece and Rome, and this is what today today's Greece is here, uh, in this island, or almost island, and this is Turkey, and all the seven churches of Asia Minor are in Tur- today's Turkey, and Patmos is an island just off the seashore of Asia Minor. Okay. So John, he declares himself here in the prophecy, just to make sure that prophecy is attributed to somebody. You go to the Old Testament, all the book of prophecies. How many books of prophecies in the Old Testament? How many prophets in the Old Testament and how many books of prophecies in the Old Testament? How many major prophets? Four. Four. And how many minor prophets? No. How many minor prophets? Twelve minor prophets, four major prophets. How many books of prophecy? Specifically with names? Not every, you know, I know everything in the Bible has prophecies in it. Do we have 16 books of prophecies or 17? 17. Why? Why the 17? How <laughs> uh, about a dollar? A dollar if you tell me why 17? <laughs> we need this cash here. Lamentations of Jeremiah. So people add that to the books, you know, to the prophecy books. That's why it's 17. Okay. That's one read in, the, in the Good Friday. Right. Okay, so John here says by himself, 
this is John who writes writing this prophecy not like in the letters he calls himself you know the elder or like in uh, the gospel he always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved uh, here he calls him, you know he states his name clearly seven churches I'm going to talk about that later on again the number seven is a complete number we're still in the which day seventh day you go to the days you know the week if you try to divide the whole year and the you're going to find that the basic unit is seven. A lot of things are seven. Actually, I saw an article on the web that's very nice. And uh, it argues against why Martin Luther, when Martin Luther or Calvin, one of these people, wanted to remove the letter of James. And I said, oh no, this is not a canonical book, because as you know, uh, a lot of the Protestants, they hate the letter of St. James, because it talks about the deeds and acts and so on, and how can how our act should be good, and just count on that. So this guy is writing, you know, wrote a whole analysis. Why, if we remove the letter of St. James from the authors of the Bible, it's going to be a big mistake, and it's going to break down the whole unity of the Bible. And he bases that on what? How many letters... Like, how many Catholic epistles? Seven. If you cruise St. James, it's seven. Right? So he's one of the sevens. If you look at how many authors with their names attached to the books, it's multiple of sevens. If you look at how many, you know, a, a lot of things are related with the number seven, even if in the index of the Bible itself. You look at it, there's a lot of sevens related to the index of the Bible. And if you remove one of these books, that whole sequence and combination of seven falls apart. And don't ask me why God chose seven. Why didn't he choose eight or nine or, you know. We're going to go through number seven and some of the numbers later on. So number seven just represents a complete number. So some of the, you know, all the fathers are saying basically, these are representative of all the churches. And once we start in chapter 2, we're going to see some of these things. Grace and peace. Grace comes first. And then, peace. Why is that? This was covered last time. I'm just reviewing that because, this, you know, we're just starting. We're not going to do that. Grace comes from God and peace follows. Grace comes from God and peace follows. Peace is a fruit of what? Of the Holy Spirit. By grace we receive the Holy Spirit. And only when we receive the Holy Spirit, we're going to receive the, receive the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which peace is one of them. So you can't receive the fruits until you plant the tree or you receive the Holy Spirit. That's why there's you no... Know, logical sequence here in, the, in these words. And this is the beauty of the Bible. Nothing is by coincidence. When it's written grace and peace, there's a big meaning for it to be grace and peace in that particular sequence. Okay. And the question, do we enjoy peace in our lives, despite where we are? This is St. John, who's, you know, saying grace and peace when he is again persecuted, exiled, was tortured, 
the whole church is being persecuted and he's declare he's calling giving peace to his people and also we don't forget in the church the church follows the exact same tradition what does Abuna say in Odess? Peace to you. So the peace is a gift from the Holy Spirit and it's passed from the priest to the people. And Abuna passes this gift to from you know to the people as well. And what do what do we reply? And also with you. Alright. But when Abuna says peace to you, there's a gradual shift in the way he says that. Do you notice at the end, after the fraction, how does he say it? How does he say it? What does he do? Why? Why does he move over? So Christ himself is present and Christ is the one who gives peace. So Abuna is there, it's just, you know, it's just an instrument. The author of peace himself is there, so I want to just, you know, guess to the side, so we receive the peace directly from from God. Unfortunately, we need to bring these things to the people we're serving. I know a lot of people here are servants, so we need to bring these people things to the people who, you know, we serve. So when they attend the liturgy, they really understand who are, you know, they are in presence of. Really, what happens in the liturgy and what we believe. If they know that they are in front of God Himself, they're not going to leave Him and go outside, you know, for the parking lot. Friends, they don't feel that. They don't believe that. So, they're just there because they get used to. And once we, you know, remind them with, the, with these facts and explain to them what happens, hopefully God is going to work in their heart and they're going to appreciate what they are. From Him who is, who was, and who is coming. By the way, uh, in the liturgy, a uh, uh, Gregorian liturgy in particular starts with this. And this is the Arabic translation for it. Again, if you didn't download uh, eSword yet, you're depriving yourself of a lot of, you know, things. Here. Uh, from this, from... Him who is and who was and who is coming. Okay. Alright. It's the same expression used in uh, again so the growing liturgy, and it uh, stands for Christ, who is eternal, and we can also stands for Christ, who is incarnate, who was, who, who is present now, who is alive now, and who was he was alive with the disciples before, and he is coming for his second coming. Right? So we can look at it in either way. Now, the seven spirits which are before his throne. In reality, there are two interpretations. Some of the fathers wrote that the seven spirits are the seven, arch- seven archangels that stand before the throne to serve God and to bring us his message. Michael, Gabriel, you know, Raphael, Sariel, Salakiel, and Aniel. 
right? Some of the fathers said that. And other, some of the other fathers said, and this is sort of the most acceptable you know, interpretation these days, is that the seven spirits is basically represents the Holy Spirit in its complete work with us. The Holy Spirit will work with each one of us in a different way. Work with you in one way, work with me in a different way. And we can probably hear the same you know, sermon and each of us receive something different because we need something different. And the Holy Spirit is working with us in a different way, but its work in humans is complete. Before the throne, somebody asked about that last time. It means God's care for humanity is always in front of Him. It's not something hidden or something you know, on the side. No, it's always before Him because He always cares about humanity. And last time also discussed that you know God's throne is really you know something for us to understand and to imagine, but there's no physical dimensions to God. Even from Jesus Christ, or also from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So, the grace and peace are coming in from the can be coming from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and from the Son, or from the, you know, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and again, emphasizing that Christ is the source of all the grace that we have received, and faithful witness. Why faithful witness? How can, you know, Jesus Christ be a faithful witness? And witness to what? That's Hajar. John is... Faithful witness to what? Again, how did we know the Father? Through Christ. So Christ is testifying to God's love to us. The only way we know that God really loved us, in addition to all the things He created for us, in addition to all the things He gave us, in addition to the commandments, in addition to all these things, the prophets and everything He did, the most important way that we would know that God loves us is He died for us on the cross. And that's how Christ witnessed to God's love to us. Christ witnessed to God's, you know, uh, holiness. He witnessed to, you know, the Father in many ways. And even when people were questioning His authority, why are you doing this? By which authority you are speaking? And so on. He told them, look, John testified for me. You don't believe me? Here my miracles testify for me. And when finally didn't you know, believe any of these things, he said, I testify for myself because I know who I am. You do not know, but I know who I am. And even you know, when he was on trial, and Pilate was asking him, who are you? Uh, in John 18, 37, Pilate then said to him, are you a king? Then Jesus answered, you say it, and I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So here's another thing that Christ is testifying for, is you know, being a witness to the truth. Right. First born from the dead. Why not, he said, the first in the dead? Why first born of the, uh, from the dead? 
العربي بك first born is بك why first born but we have Lazarus we have Jairus daughter we have by the way Christ is you know what he's number what in the people who are resurrected you see number one number two three seven eight ten fifteen quick quiz Balash. Nakhoda step by step. How many people were resurrected in the Old Testament? Ten, 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 ten. Three. Three. Who are they? Fakir Sual Kira Wichlas. Resurrected. Resurrected. Alright. The son of the widow? Which widow? Elijah wa who else? And the son of the widow with Elijah. So two sons of widow. And what else? The bones of Elijah raised someone from the dead, right? So three people were resurrected in the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? How many people were resurrected? Three. So Jesus is seventh. Again. Wow, seven. Okay. Uh, Elijah, no, Elijah resurrected the son of the widow of Sida, and Elisha resurrected the son of widow. What's her name? And then his bone. After he died, his bone. They brought his bone. You know, a dead person next. You know, on, put his bone on a dead person, and his bone resurrected one. By the way, Elisha. Read the story of Elisha. He's, as I keep saying, better than Harry Potter, better than all these wizards. So it's really, you know, great stories, and a lot of the things he did are prophecies about Christ and prophecies about the cross, and you know, wonderful things. Anyway, so what? His bones resurrected someone from the dead. So three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, and Christ was the seventh. Anybody after Christ that we know of? Yeah, yeah. And who else resurrected someone from in the New Testament? St. Peter. What's her name? Her name? Tab. Okay. Good. So, nine people. The seventh is Christ. So, why would we say the firstborn? If six people were resurrected before him, why do we say the firstborn? First one who resurrected by himself, by his own power, and another important thing. First to enter, you know, kingdom of heaven, and what else? He's the son of God. He never died again. All the six people before him and all those people who were resurrected after him, are they still alive? Is Lazarus still running around? No. They all died thousands of years ago. <laughs> he lived two, two, li- two lives, not nine. Uh, so, all these people died except... Christ who was born who, was de- who died and resurrected and never died again 
So that's the major difference. That's why we call him the firstborn. But when there's a firstborn, usually it indicates there are other people who are going to be born after him. And who are these people? They're going to be resurrected and don't die again. Who are these people? Us. Inshallah. And we're going to read later on about the second death here in the you know the seven churches. Okay. So that's why the firstborn of the dead. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, is that really true? First, is Christ was Christ was the king on earth? He was treated like one. I don't know. Again, I'm going to say whatever I want, and you guys have to prove me right or wrong. I am being recorded. That's fine. Send it. To, you're going to send it to the Pope. That's fine. He's not going to. He's not going to pay attention to someone like me. So, all right. Was he? Was Christ treated as a king on earth? Yes, he was. In two events, at least two events, actually three events. Before that, three wise men. They what? They brought him gift and treated him as a king, right? And next, into Mary, Jerusalem. And the third time, in the crucifixion, when they hung on the cross, the sign saying that he is the king of the Jews, right? Mocking him, but also, the you know, what does the psalm said? That the Lord ruled over what? Over, over you know, a wood, right? So there's a, there was a prophecy about that. Okay? So... Christ was treated as a king, though either in a mockery or in a different way, but they, whether they like it or not, they attributed king, you know, that he is the king of the Jews. When they crucified him and they treated him as a king, when you know, the three wise men came and offered him uh, you know, the, the gifts, and he entered to Jerusalem. So he was treated as a king. But he is the ruler, the, you know, ruler of the kings. How does that fit with that the devil is the you know the ruler of this world. So who's really the ruler? Is it God or is it devil? And by the way, Christ himself said that the ruler of this earth has nothing in me, right? So who is the ruler of the earth? The devil. St. John see <coughs> here, you know, saying Christ is saying, saying about himself that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So who should we believe? Christ or St. John? What is it? It has another meaning. What is it? How can we how can we reconcile these two expressions together? Very good. Technically he still has the power over the devil. Though it's like, you know, a small mutiny that's happened and the devil is trying to, you know, like a small child, you know, in a playpen. He's saying, hey, I'm not going to listen to the teacher, but he's running in a, you know, a small playpen and, you know, trying to destroy everything and telling everybody don't listen to the teacher and so on. And the teacher is standing outside laughing at him because the teacher knows that he's still in full control and he can do whatever he wants with, you know, with the kids and with everybody. Same way. The devil, you know, uh, God let the devil, you know, loose to do whatever he wants, but still under the control of God. And the best 
picture or the best story that tells us that is the story of Job in the Old Testament. That you read in the story of Job that the devil was, you know, going around in the earth. Then, you know, he come and he can't do anything unless God tell him, okay, go do this. But don't do that. Full control of God. It's the same way. God is have full authority over the kings. He allows them to be there for a purpose, even if they're you know corrupt, even if they are you know murderous, even if they're whatever. God allows them there for a purpose, and we're going to discuss some of these purposes later on. But He allows them to be there for a purpose. Uh, that's why, for example, the church is like completely against revolutions, even if the king was so corrupt and so bad, we're against revolutions 100 percent, because if the king was from God, God can take him out any way, mean, or shape, or, you know, possible by his own will. Right. Okay, now, okay, and wash us from, you know, wash us from our sins in his own blood. Again, this is, of course, we don't receive anything until we are baptized. Right. And made us kings and priests to God and his Father, to him the glory, be the glory of, and dominion forever and ever. So if this is verse is correct, well, in uh, about uh, from us, it's 8.30, so it's like 3.30 in Egypt. How yeah, about that? In five hours or six hours, Uncle Bakram is going to become a priest, so why did he waste his time and go there? We're all priests. Why, why the big fuss about you know going to Egypt and becoming a priest and being with Dana? We're all priests. All right. And unfortunately, this is what a lot of the denominations around us are using as an excuse to say, you know, there's no priesthood. Priesthood is over. They try to cancel the priesthood, but they also don't, friends, you know, cancel kings and rulers. Still have kings and presidents and rulers and so on. And nobody said, you know, nobody went to Queen Elizabeth and told her, look, you can't be the queen anymore. We're all kings and queens here. Right? They, you know, they left her to be as she was. Right. So, what does kings and priests ma- means? There are two types of priesthood. Same way, there are two types of kings. There's the particular king that actually is ruling the country, but each of us is a king and a ruler of our own desires, own bodies, own lust. Your body and you are. A kingdom by itself and one or two things either you're the ruler and God gave you the authority to rule over yourself or devil is the ruler of your own body or your own desire or your own will that's the way we look at kingdom so the same way we look at priesthood there's a lot of ways that we can become priests of course this particular priesthood of being standing and receiving the gift of priesthood that God Christ himself gave to apostles and the apostles gave to uh, the bishops and the priests and so on and this is inshallah Uncle Makram is going to receive in a few hours uh, this is something special right? he, the, the gift that he's going to receive is to be able to practice the, the sacraments and sanctify the, you know, the sacraments that he's going to be doing 
But all of us can be priests in a different sense, in the general sense. Same way in the Old Testament, God told his nation, You're gonna be I'm gonna make you in a nation of priests and kings. And he said, for example, I'm gonna have a, a temple in the mid in the, you know in the land of Egypt. And there cannot be a temple without priests. But we only if we only say that Jews are the only people who are allowed to be priests in Leviticus priesthood, doesn't make sense to have another temple in the midst, you know, in the middle of land of Egypt and to have priests there as well. So it's a general meaning of priesthood when you know it's mentioned this way. Some of the things, if we go back to the Bible and try to dig in what can we be priests of, you know, there are you know, at least five things that we can think of. Sacrifice of praise. Uh, in Hebrew 13.15, By him then let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips confession, confessing his name. So praises, when we go to church or when we go to our bedroom and stand up and praise God, this is offering a sacrifice, this is being a priest, and this can be done by a man, a woman, a child, by anybody. A broken spirit. We all you know, pray that in every day, hopefully seven times a day. Uh, the sacri- sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Why are we picking on the word sacrifice? And every time the word sacrifice is attributed to something, we consider that an act of priests. Because only a priest can offer a sacrifice. If you go back to the Old Testament... Why do we call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the patriarchs? It's an interactive class, guys. Interactive class. Wake up. It's cold enough. I told them specifically to lower the temperature so nobody sleeps. So, why are they called the patriarchs? Because they were the rulers of the families and they're the ones who are offering sacrifice. After... Leviticus priesthood came, David couldn't offer a sacrifice. When Saul the king offered the sacrifice, Samuel told him, you went crazy, and your kingdom is going to be divided. So only the priests were allowed to offer a sacrifice. That's from the, you know, Levi on, only priests were allowed to offer a sacrifice. So if you and I are offering a sacrifice, by implication that means that you and I I are priests in the spiritual sense, not in the materialistic sense. Okay. Our bodies as living sacrifices. Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. You know, I'm saying brothers, but of course that means brothers and sisters, huh? You guys don't say that, you know, it's only for the boys to give them, you know, bodies and sacrifices. Prayer. Psalm, you know, 141, 2. Let my prayer be set forth before you as an incense and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. So that's, again, praises and prayers are sacrifices to God and this is what we do as priests. Good deeds in Hebrews 13:16, but do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Okay. So we go back and tell these people this is the kind of 
priesthood that we all are contributing to. So if you want to eliminate priesthood, you might as well eliminate you know, kings and rulers. Of course, nobody dares to do that. And they only you know, try to eliminate priesthood from the church, but that's not right. Now, we saw these kinds of you know, sacrifices. We saw that this is what you and I as priests should be doing. Said, you know, sacrifice of praise, broken spirit, our bodies, prayer, good deeds. Ask yourself, are you living up to the priesthood that you are supposed to be doing that? Are we, you know, are we offering any of these sacrifices on a regular basis? So we are really called priests. And are we ruling on our bodies and our desires and our wills as kings? Okay. That's another important aspect. Right. Oops. Behold, he comes with the clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him will see him. And all the kindreds of the earth will wail because of him even so Amen. He comes with the clouds. The clouds can stand for many things. You know, they can, you know, always when God appeared in His glory, there were always clouds, you know, accompanying that. Uh, clouds also can stand for something mysterious. You know, when they're on the stage, when they try to make somebody mysterious, you know, they have clouds and somebody walking as a shadow in the clouds because you are covered in the clouds. So, why does God appear in the clouds? Because God is mysterious. We cannot understand Him. And the clouds uh, are a natural thing for us because we cannot see Him directly. And He's mysterious for us, so we only see Him through clouds. And also the saints. When God, um, when Christ is going to come again, He's going to come with His saints. And we hear a lot of these stories about when people are dying. Christ comes with the saints to receive their souls. You all heard the story of, you know, when St. Mary passed away, Christ came with the angels and the saints to receive her spirit. Her body, I'm sorry. Um, so, the saints as well. But why, why are the saints in particular are represented by clouds? By the way, uh, one of the prophecies they say in Isaiah that, you know, about Christ entering into Egypt, you know, says that here's you know God coming into Egypt on a fast cloud. Right. So why is the saints are called clouds? Great. Yes, Saint Paul in Hebrews he said the cloud of you know saints are called with. But why a cloud? How is the cloud formed? It requires two things, right? To, for a cloud to be formed, it requires two things. It requires water. Water, very good, and requires the sun. What is the water in the in the, our biblical language? What's the water? The Holy Spirit. And what is the sun? Christ. So the Holy Spirit is in, 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 in each one of us. And if we expose ourselves to Christ... And the son of our, you know, our life. And later on, we're going to see that his face is, you know, 
shines more than the sun. If Christ shines on us, and the Holy Spirit that's working with us, in us, we're going to be like, you know, vapor rising up. And the more we let go of our sins, let go of our desires, we become light and are lifted up to heaven and then become like a cloud. So there are two things that are mandatory for a cloud to happen. There's the water and the, and the sun, the Holy Spirit and the relationship with Christ. That's why these saints became so high and they became so light up on the, you know, they're close to heaven. And also because the cloud is what? Close to to heaven. They say, you know, you want to, you know, you have, you want to pray for something and let it happen. Take, you know, ride on a plane and pray up, you know, up there above the clouds. Sure to get there quickly. Okay. Again, the very important things that we have to, basics that we have to know from here is that Christ's second coming, as you know, John is saying here, and every eye shall see him. If somebody tells you that Christ came and he's sitting on the clouds and he's been ruling on earth since 1914, come on, how does this you know, work with this verse that every eye shall see him. So what Jehovah's Witness are saying and what all these people are saying does not make sense. When Christ is going to come, every eye shall see him. And also, depends on your deeds. It depends on how well you prepare. When Christ is going to come, it's either you are ready and happy and joyful, cannot wait for him, you know, to come down or you're scared now that everything that you have done and all the enmity you have against God is immediately exposed to you and you know that you're going to end up to be in hell and all what you have rejected is becoming a reality and you're going to be pay for all your sins and you're going to be wailing and wishing that the mountains drop on you and cover you from his face so it's one of two things. And those who pierced him will see him. What does that mean? Is only does this only apply to the Romans and the Jews? That you know pierced God two thousand years ago? Every time we commit a sin, we are as if we're nailing him again. And we're piercing him again. Okay. This is our sin. Again, there's a, a very beautiful picture. And I think some people put it on PowerPoint, you know, presentation that, you know, about the person who kneels Christ, but actually ends up who's holding him is Christ. Christ is holding the person who nailed him. And you see the nail in one hand and the hammer is in the other hand, but Christ is the one who's holding him. So... We are the ones who nail Christ and pierce Him by our sins. So don't attribute this verse only to the Romans and the Jews. To each one of us who commits sin and is arrogant by His acts. Okay, verse 8. Uh, we still have 11 verses, so we're close. 9. We're close. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord who is 
and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay? Alpha and Omega, and beginning and end. They sound the same, right? And, you know, in all honesty, after like, you know, last week I was thinking about them also, they are the same. But the, again, those fathers and those, you know, people who get into the depths of things, they don't take everything lightly like we do. They look at this as, you know, these are two different messages from God. Alpha and Omega. These are the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Okay. The language, again, Christ is the word of God. So he is the beginning and the end of everything. He is the first and the last in everything we need to know about God. By Through him, we're going to know everything about God himself. So let's read this, uh, the Alpha and Omega, and these are the first letters in the Greek alphabet. It means that everything that is needed to explain God is contained in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the language by which we know God. It is through His love that we know how much God love is. It's through Christ's humility and sacrifice and wisdom we know who Christ God is. Why did you choose Alpha? In Arabic, we translate that al-alif In English, I don't translate it to the A to the Z. We just keep it as alpha and omega. But in Arabic, it's translated into alif uliyah, the first and last letters of the alphabet. And the nice thing as well is that Abuna's clause, alpha and omega are on it. Al-Urbana, alpha and omega on it. Reminds us with everything. The church looked at the book of Revelation, took almost everything in it, and put it in our daily life in the church. So the Alpha and Omega is always there, you see them. To know that Christ is the beginning and the end of all our language, all our prayer, all our praises, Christ is the, the first and the last. If you look at the beginning and the end, again, we talk about Christ here, you know, who who is, who was, and who is to come. Same thing we said about him before. And we're all saying he's the beginning and the end. If you go back to Isaiah, you're going to find that God is talking about himself, when he's talking about himself, who has planned and done it, calling forth generations from the beginning, I, Jehovah, and the first, I'm the first and the last. I am he. Okay. Again, I am He and Java am the first, like who is and who was and who is to come. It's the same verb. Uh, and the beginning and the end, God is the beginning and end of all of everything. The source of all creation and the goal of the all creation. He is, starts everything and He's the one who's going to conclude everything. He started the creation and he's the one who's going to conclude it later on. In our life, in our daily practice, do we put God as the beginning and end of everything we do? Or he's sometimes the C or the D and have other motives to do things and then when I'm in trouble I go and call for God but then, you know, when things come successful, I attribute that to myself and my intelligence and my luck and everything else. 
is God the beginning and end? Is He the purpose of everything I do? Is He the goal of everything I do? Because you know you always do things for the goal. That's the ultimate thing you want to achieve. That's your goal. So is God always your goal? I should ask about ourselves these ways. The Almighty, which is the Pantocrator, okay, uh, the all ruling that is God uh, as absolute and universal sovereign, uh, Almighty, omnipotent. We go back in the Old Testament again, and we find that in Isaiah 9:6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So it's the same expression given to Christ or the same expression given to God the Father. So that's another proof of Christ's divinity. Uh, Jehovah's Witness or uh, the Mormons or you know somebody comes and tells you Christ is not God, no way. All the attributes Jehovah have are the same attributes or the Christ had. Okay, and here are the proofs. Okay. okay. Here's another point that probably Jehovah's Witness do that. They try to take the verse and say parts of it belongs to the Father, and then parts belong to the Son, and then the rest belong to the Father. Like you know, the beginning and the end is the Father. And then you here's and then who is and who was and he is to come is the son. Here they divide the verse this way. They say I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. This is about the Father. Says the Lord. And then you know the Son is who is and who was and he is to come. That's about the Son. The Almighty is again to the Father. The sequence of the, the word and the paragraph and, you know, sequence of ideas doesn't hold to that. The whole verse is talking about one person, that's Christ. He is the beginning, he is the end, he is the Alpha, he is Omega, he is who was, who is, and he is to come, and he is the Almighty. He is one person, and all these are attributes to, to one person, not to two different people. So all these describe, you know, the Son. Uh, referring no, referring to Christ. All okay. because the the Trinity, each one of the Trinity, has the same attributes of the others. Can we say that you know? Should we say only that the Son is you know powerful, or does the Father is powerful and the Son you know the Holy Spirit is powerful? Could you say like the Son cleanses you, or should you only say the the Son also cleanses you, right? But who sort of, you know, does that in the spiritual way and, you know, who lives in us is the Holy Spirit, right? Was the Father involved in the redemption? By all means. Was the Holy Spirit involved in the redemption? By all means. Okay, it's one God. It's not three different gods. Okay. The Son was not separated from the Father or from the Holy Spirit at all when you know when he was incarnate or when he died on the cross or when he was buried or any of these things right. I John who also am your brother and companion in the affliction and in the kingdom of the pa- and patience of Jesus Christ as 
I'm sorry, was in the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. And John is he who is John compared to these, you know, churches he's talking to. He is their bishop. He is a disciple of Christ, and these people probably knew in the faith. And he is probably the one who ordained them. Uh, you know, he is spiritually there and you know who knows where the spiritual level we're going to see later on where the spiritual level is but he's calling them I'm your brother and companion in affliction so the servant or the priest or the bishop or the patriarch he's supposed to humble himself and be like the others and share with them and not separate himself and put himself into a high place. If he put himself in a high place, he's gonna, God's going to make sure that brings him down. Who said that? St. Mary said that. Huh? Go back and read. St. Mary didn't say a whole lot, by the way. Her, her words in the Bible are very short, but she said that. If you raise up, lift up yourself, what is God going to do to you? He moved, what, the mighty from their thrones, right? Anyway, St. John, again, because he lived with St. Mary a lot, and he lived with Christ, he understands humility. He knows humility. He is living a life of humility, so he's making himself one with, you know, his brethren, the other bishops. And it also shows that uh, testifying for Christ will mean that you're going to be in persecution, you're going to be in trouble. It's a normal thing. There's nothing uh, different. He relates the suffering to the kingdom of God. So you can't get to God, to kingdom of God without suffering. This is something that we have to be aware of. I came to be in the spirit in the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Came to be in the spirit. This is a spiritual you know, state by the way, the day of the Lord, all the fathers said that it is uh, Sunday. Okay. So it became in the spirit. Of course, you know, we haven't been there yet, so we're not going to be able to explain what it is. Because I haven't been there yet, so I can't explain what it is to be in the spirit. But everybody's, you know, saying it's, it's a spiritual state that they're so. Uh, it's like you know, you're riding in a, you know one of those air balloons. You're letting go of the weights and you, you know, being lifted up to have close, you know, close, the more you, li- you let down of the weights you're carrying, the easier it is to gonna go up. So he was in the days of the Lord and he was in the spirit. Now the question is for us in the day of the Lord, day of the Lord, what are we doing? What is our activities? I'm not gonna say every day because every day is, you know, belongs to God, but at least on Sunday. I know you guys are all here and sacrificing and, you know, being here on a Sunday evening. That should be our attitude for the whole day, that we are in the spirit. We are trying to make spiritual matter the main concern of our thinking, uh, our speech, what we talk about, and what we pray for, especially on Sunday. By the way, you go back to the Old Testament... And after God got his people out of Israel and 
you know, they left him and, you know, astray and so on. And he sort of rebuked them and he tells them, look, I gave you everything. I gave you the commandments and I gave you the Sabbath. God considered that giving his people the Sabbath is a great thing. Because on the Sabbath, or the day of the Lord, we're supposed to sit down and do nothing except think about God, pray and meditate. And come close to God on that day. So, as far as God is concerned, this is one of the best gifts that He gave His people. How, will we, how do we deal with Sunday, the day of the Lord? Okay. I heard behind me. Again, the, the vision is gradual. Even St. John, even when he was in the Spirit, he cannot receive the vision all of the sudden. Don't, don't worry, if you're ever going to get a vision, it's going to be a gradual thing. And you're not going to be surprised, you're not going to be scared that you know you see God, you know, or you know, one of the saints in front of you all of a sudden. It's going to be a gradual thing, so you're prepared to receive it. The same thing, St. John here received this, you know, the Spirit in a gradual way. First he heard the voice, then we're going to see later on, he said, that, you know, I turned around to see the, who's talking to me, and we'll see that uh, in a minute. Trumpet stands for warning, declaring war, declaring, you know, time to go and travel. Uh, so, Revelation here announces, you know, uh, a feast that's going to happen, which is meeting Christ, and the banquet of the Lamb that is going to see later on at the end. And for travel means we're just here temporarily in the world and we're going to be going up soon whether soon is you know 10 years 20 years 70 years 120 years it's still soon when he heard the trumpet he heard God's voice as a trumpet saying I am the Alpha and the Omega again the first and the last also what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches so there are some visions that are for individuals private visions and there are some visions that are public this one is public he told him write this for example we see St. Paul he went and he saw visions and he didn't really talk about it a whole lot these were private visions for him this vision is not that kind it's you know it's public he was he saw it on behalf of us to tell everyone what's going to happen at the end write in the book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Theatra, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And we're going to understand what meaning each one of these will happen. And write what you see. So this is the, the meaning of a vision. How, how do people see a vision? Does God take them to the event that's happening and He makes them see them? Maybe. That God let them see over, for example, a period of time in a short period. Does He make them see, you know, a video? We don't know. They just see the events happening. And we, I, you go back to Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel, and they say the same thing. I saw, say, I saw this. How did they see it? We don't know. Sure. Do the prophets in the Old Testament understand what they're prophesizing? Very good question. The, do the prophets in the Old Testament understood what they're talking about? Yeah. 
But let's say, you know, prophecies about the incarnation, prophecies about salvation. Did they understand that? No, they did. How else they, they rejoiced by the prophecies they're saying? God is very fair and God is very loving. Those prophets, they they were on a very high spiritual level. They they felt that there's no other way. They cannot be saved this way. And God had to have another way. And thus God revealed Himself to them. If these people, you know, thought that they can be saved or they can be righteous just by following the commandments and executing the commandments, they wouldn't need, you know, to seek something else. They all knew that what they're doing and the commandments and the law will not get them anywhere. And that's why God revealed Himself to them. And that's why God told them about His plan for the salvation. And that's why when they saw this plan, they rejoiced. Maybe they didn't understand it to the full. When, for example, God promised you know, Abraham a son. Maybe he didn't understand what God was trying to say. When he told him he's going to come from Sarah, he didn't understand. He thought, well, maybe Sarah's maid would be enough. God's promises sometimes were clear. But people tried to inter- interpret them in a different way. Because of their humanity. But the prophets in the Old Testament, they saw, they understood, and they glorified God for the you know the salvation that he's prepared for his people. What about like Balaam or the false prophet? Or? Balaam is a, you know it's not a shaky it's you know it's a very difficult question because he was God's prophet but he was not he was he was corrupt. And if you study his prophecies in you know, book of numbers extremely accurate. I see him, but not now. And you know, he's going to come and he's going to save his people. Very accurate prophecies about Christ. Right? Uh, he understood it. If he repented, he wouldn't have given, you know, the advice to uh, Balak, as we're going to see later on in one of the, you know, the churches. But he did not. He saw the vision. He saw the hope. He saw the salvation. But he didn't take that personally. Okay. So sometimes God uses as an instrument. We don't benefit. I might be, you know, right now talking to you guys, but in, internally I'm not benefiting anything from what I'm saying. Just, you know, like a parrot or like a tape being played, but I'm not benefiting from the inside. This will not prevent that the word of God will reach someone, you know, in the way he wants. Okay. All right. You guys want to stop here while uh, it's 9 o'clock? Or do you want to keep going? Well, uh, well you've got 20 verses. Yeah, I was planning to finish chapter one today. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, it's an hour and a half, so let's take a break. <laughs>